All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. That would be me. Yeah, we're going to try to crank it up here for hour number two. And I'm really excited to have on the program this morning Colin Hansen. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Colin Hansen. He serves as vice president for content and editor in chief of the Gospel Coalition, as well as executive director of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, something, by the way, that I'm really excited about, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Colin will talk, tell us a lot about that as well. He hosts the Gospel Bound podcast and has written and contributed to many books, most recently the book we're going to talk about today that just came out, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Uh, now, for those of you who have listened to this program for any length of time, over the last 20 years, uh, you know that Tim Keller has had an incredible impact on my life, the way I think about apologetics, the way I think about preaching. I've tried to um, form a lot of my preaching when I was full-time pastor and now as an interim pastor working in different uh, environments. I've, I've allowed his the way that he uh, presents a sermon, the Christ-centeredness excuse me, of it, um, so I've talked about that a lot, and now we want to welcome Colin Hansen to the program, who's written his biography. Good morning, Colin. How are you? Oh, good morning. What an encouraging introduction, and I'm grateful to see that influence over the long term from Tim Keller's ministry. You know, I, I have to—I'm going to make a confession to you. Uh, usually kind of weird when you start a interview with a confession— but when I read the forward, and because I, I was looking forward, when I heard about this book, I'm thinking, okay, this is the biography of Tim Keller. And I've read so many biographies in my life. I, I try to go through and, and have read many of the Founding Fathers' biographies. And then I saw that it was going to be written through the eyes of his mentors. And when I saw that, I thought, now, how is this going to work? How am I going to find out about <laughs> Tim Keller and Kathy Keller by looking through, and I've got to tell you, Colin, this is one of the best books that I have ever read. Now, I'm not finished. I'm just partway through part three because I got distracted over this weekend and I didn't get to finish. But let me congratulate you. I, I can't put it down when I pick it up because of what I'm learning about the influences. Now, I'm going to read a paragraph and I'm going to shut up and let you talk. But here's this is um, in um, uh, one of the, it just, it just kind of brings together the influencers. Uh, Martin Lo Lloyd Jones helped him by reaffirming the need to edify and evangelize in the same sermon. Jonathan Edwards helped him reach the heart, not just the mind, with vivid illustrations. John Stott modeled how to apply the text to contemporary culture. Keller listened to so many Dick Lucas sermons that Kathy told him to be careful because he was going to sound like a parrot. And then we have Edmund Clowney, who there's a whole chapter. His name shows up in different places, but then there's a whole chapter about Clowney's influence over Keller. So let me just lay that out for you to kind of pick that up and talk about some of the great influencers of the 20th century in evangelical thought and Puritan thought and revival, uh, the revival thought influenced Tim Keller. It, 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 that's a good way to put well, that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think and we could add maybe the two biggest names in there, Elizabeth Elliot and C.S. Yes. Lewis. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people will find out for the first time in this book is that Kathy, as a young child, 13 years old, 
she was one of the last people that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Right. Before he died in 1963, they corresponded back and forth with each other. And then jump forward to Elizabeth Elliot. I think there are very few people out there who understand that Kathy was actually a contributor, quoted in Elizabeth Elliot's book, Let Me Be a Woman. And she had been in, uh, Kathy and Kim had both studied Christian communication with her at Gordon-Conwell. And so I think you can see then why I adopted the angle that I, that I did, yes. because by looking through Kim and Kathy's lives, we learn a tremendous amount about the last 75 years of, of religious history, and specifically evangelical history, because their lives intersect directly with a lot of major figures like R.C. Sproul um, and even, even C.S. Lewis. Um, but at the same time, they also are, at a distance, they, they learn from all these different figures. I'm not even sure that Tim Keller, or, well, he did. He did have something of a relationship with John Scott, but it wasn't particularly personal or close. And yet when John Scott died, Tim Keller was the one who did the memorial service in the United States and gave tribute to him. And that's not a surprise, because I think the, the closest parallel is, is John Stott from the previous generation. Yeah. And when Tim Keller became a Christian, he was really looking up to British evangelicals. Well, let me go back and talk a little bit about Kathy, uh, about Kathy uh, because you're talking about someone here who was raised in the Presbyterian USA tradition, or was in that tradition, mm -hmm. and she was right. moving toward ordination. And it was Elizabeth mm -hmm. Elliot that convinced her that essentially complementarianism was. Now it goes much deeper than that. When you read this quote that she has, and Elizabeth Elliot quoted her, uh, it's one of the most fantastic uh, passages, statements that I've ever read about how the Bible speaks about men and women and the need for both. She talks about the, you know negative, the protons, neutrons, the negative, the positive, the way things are held together in the universe, and applies that to men and women and the institution of marriage. But it was so profound on her that she had to go before some type of, of panel or a group mm -hmm. and stand and renounce the, her ordination and announce that she was not going to seek it and give the biblical reason why. And she was actually booed by uh, a lot of the women that were hearing her make that statement. What a brave and incredible thing to do. Yeah, one of the things that I, I, I think people will probably learn from this book is about the rise of what's commonly known as evangelical feminism right. in the 1970s. And that may be familiar to some people, but probably not to many others. For people who are dialed into the political scene, this is the era of the Equal Rights Amendment as well, and then the rise of Eagle Forum to a Schlafly, things like that. And so it's just fascinating to, be, to see what would it have been like in those denominational battles. You know, those Northern Presbyterians had fought some really difficult and painful battles throughout the 20th century, and by the 1970s, that was simply the latest. That Presbyterian Pittsburgh, where Cassie grew up, that is the that was the largest in the United States. Pittsburgh was basically a Presbyterian town, and so they were embroiled in these really really difficult debates. And you're right when she had to announce that she was removing herself from the ordination track, and some 500 people in that in that room, and about half of them, men and women, were booing that decision because of the you know, significance of it. And 
Kathy's just such a formidable figure in her own right that an area evangelist, John Guest, is actually kind of world famous, said she's the greatest youth organizer in, Pen- in western Pennsylvania. Wow. I mean, that's who she was before she went to seminary. She's quite a, quite a woman uh, to this day as well. Well, and yeah, at one of the chapters is titled "Kathy the Valiant," and when I when I read that chapter, I thought, "Wow, how appropriate it is this." You know, let me say a word about uh, Pat, people that are beginning their role as a pastor. If you're graduating from seminary, thinking about starting, you should read this book for so many reasons. But one of the ones that I would point out is because of the way you write about Hopewell, Virginia and uh, Tim Keller's first church. He spent nine years there in what would have been a very difficult situation for him, but he 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 went from the the center of intellectual life into a community where he was needing to reach people that had not been exposed to the type of writing or thinking that he had the opportunity to be exposed to. But he loved them, he learned about them, and he built that church preaching the truth and learning how to apply it in a rural situation like that. It's a, it's a primer for how pastors need to approach ministry. Yeah, I think I think I've heard from a lot of people already that maybe the Hopewell chapter is their favorite. It might have been my my favorite chapter to write. I could say so much about it. I'll have to restrain myself. But I was I was so happy about even just the title of that chapter, "Chemical Capital of the South." Yes, <laughs> and I thought, what a perfect description of of what they walked into in Hopewell, Virginia, in 1975. Some of us doesn't feel like that long ago. But when you go back, you, you realize this church, a PCA congregation, brand-new denomination at the time, and then, you know, around 1970, and um, you, you've got two people in the congregation, about, about 100 people. Two of them have college degrees, both of them elementary school teachers. Very few have education beyond sixth grade. Many of them had fathers who fought in the Civil War. Right. That's 1975, Hopewell, That's... Virginia. Yep. Um, and you get Tim Keller, doesn't have any contact in the South, goes down there. Best thing, I, I, I love this little story. This is, gives everybody a flavor for what's in the book. I got to talk to the best man at Tim and Kathy's wedding, Bruce Henderson. And R.C. Sproul does the wedding. He's the best man. And he says to me, they must have been desperate. And I said, well, of course Tim and Kathy were desperate to take that job. They took the U.S. Civil Service exam to be postal carriers right. in Boston. But they <laughs> didn't have any options for, for a church because they were... Presbyterian, a brand-new denomination. There were no churches in New England. And he said, no, 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 no. The church must have been desperate for Tim and Kathy <laughs> to choose them because they were so unimpressive. All the things we're saying here about how impressive they are, well, yes, in some sense, but they just they were not the most likely to succeed. They were very brilliant, but they weren't the social butterflies. They weren't at the center right. of the social scene. Because there's a lot of encouragement, I think, in ministry doesn't have to fit a certain mold. That that's absolutely true. Uh, be true to and faithful to the word, and as Edmund Clowney helped uh, Tim Keller see, make sure that in your preaching, people hear and see Jesus at every turn. When I read his book on preaching. Uh, that, that's what just kept coming back to me. You know, I, it made me examine my sermons, and I can't, I can't do a sermon. I can't prepare a sermon now without thinking about, okay, where is Jesus? Where is redemption? How does it tie 
into whatever I'm preaching about because uh, that's what Tim Keller does. Um, let, let me, well, first of all, I just want to recommend this book. We're going to run out of time here in a minute. But uh, I want to recommend this to everybody. Uh, it's one of the most encouraging, profound books that I have read in a long time and one that I'm enjoying uh, on top of that. Um, but I want, I want you to talk about, a little bit about the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics because I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Well, this is an initiative that Tim and I have launched together. It was one of the major motivations for the book was to help prime the pump for people to be talking about what we see as a major necessary shift in, in what the Church needs to be doing today. I don't know how many listeners know this, but in the last 25 years, 40 million Americans have left the Church. Yes. And the crazy thing is, we don't have some sort of perfect model from history that we can go back to because... No one ever ever has been in this post-Christendom environment before. So we're trying to galvanize church leaders in the academy and in the the local church itself, also within the marketplace, to come together to talk about this, to pray about this, to plan, and ultimately to train ourselves and everyone else in the church to be prepared for this and to adjust to this, not only to kind of open the front door of evangelism and apologetics for this secular age, but also to close that back door of all the people who've been leaving the church. And then on top of that, you know, send out the equipped into your, you know, if people are on their way commuting to the office this morning at the Super Bowl, to be able to talk to your friends about what's happening, yes. to point them to Jesus, maybe to mention that ad that we saw, a couple ads that we saw in there. That's what we're hoping to do for people all over, up and down, left and right in, in the church, focused on the gospel in, in God's inerrant word. Well, I would, uh, and I would recommend Tim's book, The Reason for God, um, yes. for, for anybody who is, really wants to reach skeptics, because it is about apologetics, but it's about apologetics on a level that is winsome and conversational in the way that yeah. you approach people who are uh, lost or, you know, skeptical of the gospel. And that's what, of course, we haven't even talked about Redeemer Church and the tremendous success <laughs> that he's had there. But, uh, Colin... Um, or 9-11. Yeah. Or 9-11. Yes. I mean, there's a lot to come. Tony. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> oh, I know. I'm looking forward to, to the rest of the book. I can't wait. Let me uh, ask you a final question. Um, how, is, how is Tim doing? How's Tim, how are Tim and Kathy? Well, you know, I continue, I continue to say about as well as anybody can be with, uh, with pancreatic cancer, where we have right. no known cure. So I just ask everybody to continue to pray. I talked with him at length the other night. I'll say this. Every time I have talked with him in conjunction with this process, he has been the most encouraging and hopeful yeah. that I've ever seen him. I've known him since 2007. And so... I think if, I, I, if, if Tim were asking everybody here, they'd say, yes, please do pray for my health. I've, I've got some other projects I want to complete. Yes. Um, I've got grandkids, my wife. But at the same time, pray the Lord continues to prepare me for eternity and revive my soul in the here and now, um, and, and my wife as well. So I think well. that's what... He'd ask us to pray. I can't. I, I can't think about that without getting a little bit emotional. I know um, it. But I know it. Um, let me let me lead us in prayer, Colin. Um, yeah. And I'm going to yeah. recommend everybody go check out the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, and and please uh, get a copy of of Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation. You will um, you will love it, and you will want to spend time with it. 
Father God, I come before you in Jesus' name, and I thank you for my brother. Um, never met. Uh, we've talked. This is the first time we've actually had a conversation. We've shared a couple of emails. But the instant connection through the power of the Holy Spirit is just palatable. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you for putting it in his heart to write a book that doesn't just speak of a person and their life, but why that person is and how their life has been developed by those who poured into it. May we all think about that today and think about somebody. Take this as an opportunity for us to think about somebody who's poured into our lives the way Tim Keller's poured into mine and to others. Maybe maybe it's him. Maybe it's somebody else that you know or you met that whose name is never going to be written in a book, but they had an impact on you. Um, pray for them today, even as Colin and I come together to lift up Tim and Kathy. We pray for Tim's healing. We pray for comfort and peace and encouragement. And God, that you may be glorified. Extend his days on this earth to finish these projects that will touch so many people. And we thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Amen. Colin, thank you, brother. Uh, I want to stay in touch, and you can count yes, on me being you. being at the Keller Center looking for a lot of good <laughs> apologetic material. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think I could have talked to him for the rest of the show. Um, but um, And I'm talking about Colin Hansen, of course. Uh, author of the new book, uh, Tim Keller, and it's about it, it. Really, is a book about his spiritual formation, which um, it came out last week. It's only been out a few days, uh, which is why I just I, I want time to read, and I just find that over this weekend I was on the phone because of various things. Um, every time I would settle in um, and start to read, uh, I'd have to be on the phone for an hour. So sometimes it it works that way. Um, this week, as far as uh, legislate the legislature goes, uh, there's going to be you know the the Senate ended up last week passing the heartbeat bill, and um, that bill will be going over to the House at some point. The House this week is going to take up, if I understand correctly, the Human Life Protection Act, which protects life beginning at conception. Of course, the heartbeat bill is a six week ban uh, on abortion. It's when a heartbeat is detected. Uh, the House will begin their debate <clears throat> on Wednesday. Um, the The bill has amendments for rape, incest, life of the mother, and fatal fetal anomaly, um, and um, it, um, you know, it contains some language from Justice Few, uh, and his, uh, even though he concurred with overturning the heartbeat bill based on privacy that's in the South Carolina Constitution, which I've talked at length about why I think that's incorrect, but Anyway, um, he he did say that if if the legislature had decided that life begins at conception, then all of the rights of the Constitution, including the right to privacy, would need to be extended to the unborn, which would mean he might have voted in a different way, which is interesting. You know, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, is as well you you're at six weeks but if you'd have backed it all the way up to conception um now we we have no way of knowing if that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek or if it could have been 
uh, if he was uh, maybe chastising the legislature in some way for not doing what a lot of uh, conservatives like me would like to see, which is life protected beginning at conception because of what I believe about life at conception. But the bottom line is this, um, and I'm just, again, going to give you the, some of the numbers. I mean, DHEC says we're approaching 1,000 abortions a month. And we're, they're on the rise because we're a 22-week state, and we're going to be a 22-week state until we either cut that back to six weeks or protecting life at conception. And I, I'll, what I want, I want life to be protected from conception, but I want us to somehow, if we can't get to life protected by conception, I want us to get off of 22 weeks because that's a disaster. We're talking about well into the second trimester when you're talking about 22 weeks. Uh, that's pain capable. And that's something that we were able to pass and it be deemed constitutional under the state constitution back before Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, so my prayer is that the South Carolina legislature, the leaders in the House and the Senate, will get together and pass a bill that protects life. What, I, I don't know what that final bill is going to look like, but right now it, you can't get a Human Life Protection Act through the Senate without some changed votes over there that are going to be very difficult to get, and you can't get a, uh, a bill that is a six-week bill, uh, a heartbeat bill, through the House without some changed minds and thinking over there. So to me, it's not up to those of us who are here outside the political process that may be involved by advocating for life to make that decision. We don't have the ability to do that. It's the leadership in the House and the Senate. They need to get together and hammer out a solution to this because that's what we elected them to do. And I think that's what our expectation should be, that leaders in the House and the Senate would be able to come to an agreement to protect life as much as we can protect it right now. And then let's continue that conversation and protect it more as time goes by if we can get people elected who will agree with protecting life more and more. Now, maybe we can do that now. It, doesn't, it just doesn't appear that way. It appears that there's going to have to be a change, uh, particularly in the Senate, if we're going to get there. But my prayer is that they'll find a solution, and I hope that's your prayer as well. You know, when we as conservatives step into the political arena and we make arguments against those who push back against conservative ideas, conservative philosophy— um, we need to make sure that we are backing our arguments up with the truth. And that's why, again, I'm, I'm really leaning toward this new endeavor that I'm going to launch here um, in April that um, is going to be a, a sort of a different format for this show. Um, you know, we're going to cut it back to an hour, 730 to 830, still going to be available in the mornings. And I'll, I'll tell you more about more of that in a minute. But I, I, I keep coming back to this name, uh, 
culture, politics, truth, culture, and politics with Dr. Tony B. Um, Because that's, uh, since I started this show on April 15th, 2002, I think it was. Uh, No, it was 2001, April 15th, 2001. Tax day. Um, Since I started it, I've, I've wanted to that's that's what I want to do. I I want to bring the truth of God's word to bear on politics and culture, and um, you know bring the evidence of the reality of Scripture, its power, its ability to transform us, to make us better better people, better citizens of both kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and so. Um, that's important if, if as we step into that arena that we step in fortified by the truth that's based in a transcendent word based in the fact that God is sovereign and that his word is true so um now obviously if i'm talking like this it means that there's some major changes coming to the program and a, and if you've been listening for a while, you know that his radio talk, 919897, that this format, this talk radio format, is going to end on March 31st when Gary Miller officially retires. So um, all of the programs that you're listening to here are going to be gone. You can find them in other venues, but um, basically, um, this is going to become some sort of music format, we think, and, and as we know more, we'll tell you more. But this program is going to continue via podcast, uh, via YouTube channel, via Facebook. Um, maybe somebody reminded me the other day about Rumble that I needed to uh, try to you know expand over there. And, and put things over there. I'll be less likely to get kicked off Rumble for the things that I talk about. But um, we're, it's going to be from 7.30 to 8.30, and there's some work already going. I've, I've got equipment coming to the house. I've got work being done on a YouTube channel and revamping the website. You'll be able to stream the program live from 7.30 to 8.30, just like you are now on Facebook, at least, and the YouTube channel. So, you or and and you can listen to it by going to the website. There'll be a way that you can click, and if you've got a smartphone, you can probably put it through your car speakers via Bluetooth. And we'll be talking more about that as we get closer. But I know a lot of people like to listen in the morning, and they like to listen on the way to work. And you think, well, he's not going to be on the radio anymore. How in the world am I going to do that? Um, well, there are ways to do that, and Bluetooth, and using your phone, and um, having it live on the website, and then that live program will be the podcast, and it'll be available anywhere you can get podcasts. And if you subscribe, then you can listen to it. There'll be five a week. Um, you know, I'm going to try to keep up that regimen because I believe it's important to talk about things when they happen. Now, another thing about the website is that I'm going to try to bring Hannah and Corey and Austin, who is doing some, is going to be doing some writing, and maybe even Dr. Jackson and his program. But I want the website to be a place where you can go and read some things that I write, things that Hannah writes, things that Austin writes, because we're trying to write in a manner that is not just to make you mad, 
but to make you think and to fortify you with the truth in these culture war in this culture war that we're in. I mean, I would like to think that we were not in a culture war, but when the Grammys, you know, feature the worship of Satan and you have, um, you know, television programs or series like I described earlier, 1923, that is purposely presenting Christianity not as something to be mocked, but something to be feared because it's an evil, then we're, we're in this cultural battle. Um, let me let me do this. I want to read just a little section here from the Federalist, because there's an article today at the Federalist talking about the uh, Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, and it's written by Ellie Purnell, who's a she writes a good bit over at the Federalist, and she's welcoming Tim Keller to the culture war. Now, Tim Keller has always tried to keep. He, he's tried to equip Christians to be able to talk to skeptics and to win them over by logic and the power of the truth, okay? Um, but he's, he's tr- kind of stayed away from trying to portray certain issues like abortion and homosexuality and transgender, all of this. He's tried to kind of stay away from pre- presenting them as political issues because he just believes that, that the focus needs to be in the church. But now he's launching the Center for Apologetics that is going to deal—he's acknowledging what's happened in the culture. And he's acknowledging uh, by doing this that, you know, we have one political party that has decided to embrace and push th- the fact that Christianity is evil— that we have a political party that's decided to embrace and push the fact that men can be women and women can be men, and if you disagree, you need to be canceled or vilified. Uh, we have a political party that has decided that gender uh, transformational surgery for minors is is a good thing. Um, we we've got a political party that it celebrates every form of sexual. Uh, deviation from the biblical narrative of what sex is intended to be, which is a beautiful gift between men and women for procreation and intimacy within marriage. I mean, you know, all of that is under attack, the traditional family under attack by one political party. And we, we don't do ourselves any favor if we fail to point that out. And to be honest about it, we don't have to be mean about it, but we need to just simply point to the fact that, you know, th- this is not just a conversation within the church. This is a conversation within the culture and the influencers of culture from the political party, of course, the Democrat Party, all the way to the media, to Hollywood, to music to the, the cultural pushers in our society that push the boundaries, that pull us along in a current, that pulls us away from any traditional understanding of right and wrong, that, that we've got to take our stand on the truth and be winsome, conversational, and firm in the way that we deal with those who would come after us. And so, you know, I, I think it's important for 
this radio program to continue in some form for that purpose, because that's going to be my goal. Always the truth, always focused on helping us to relate to culture through the avenues that we've been given, and one of those avenues is politics. Politics is a shaper of culture, and culture is a shaper of politics, and both should be under the influence of the truth. And so that's my goal and what I hope to accomplish, and I think that's what they're trying to accomplish at the Tim Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Okay, Joseph Sturdy and Hans von Speskovsky have um, a piece today at the Daily Signal talking about voter suppression as it relates to voter ID and other voter integrity measures that's been passed by legislatures across the country. Um, and it's, it's important to know who Hans von Spakovsky is. Uh, he's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's a former commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, former counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Justice. So those three things mean that he is highly qualified to talk about this subject. He's served in, in, as a commissioner of the Federal Election Commission. He served in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So that's where the collision is coming between voter rights, voter integrity, and civil rights. At least that's where the conversation lies today. So trust the science. That's what we've all been told. Well, the science has spoken again. Voter ID laws aren't discriminatory, and they don't suppress anyone's vote. I'm just that's that's the beginning paragraph of this piece that he wrote today for the Daily Signal. And I'm continuing here to read for years. Liberals have peddled fabricated claims about voter ID requirements, asserting that they give an advantage to the Republican Party by discriminating against African-Americans and suppressing their vote. They poo poo the notion that such laws protect the integrity and security of elections. Not only do black Americans not believe that voter laws discourage or prevent them from voting, but in a 2019 study by the National Bureau of Economic Research based on turnout data from 2008 to 2018, that's 10 years of turnout data in elections. And this is not just federal elections. This is state elections, local elections, they, they did a wide range of, of different elections asking the question about voter integrity laws. Are they really keeping minorities from voting? They concluded that voter ID laws have, quote, no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any group defined by race, gender, age, or party affiliation. Well, now this was... 2008 to 2018. Now we have another study just recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and once again, it has categorically refuted the myth propagated by the left that voter ID laws, as the study says, place a disproportionate burden on historically disadvantaged groups such as the poor and people of color and therefore hurt candidates of the Democrat Party. The researchers say they studied the electoral fortunes of both political parties in races at the state level 
state legislatures and govern governorships, and the federal level, United States Congress and President, from 2003 to 2020. So this is 17 years of data at the state and the federal level. The study concluded that the first voter ID laws actually produced a Democratic advantage, which weakened to near zero after 2012, so that today voter ID laws have negligible average effects. That is academic speak for saying that voter ID laws have no effect on the ability of the candidates of either Republican or Democrat parties to get elected. So at the very beginning, as they begin, we begin to think about voter integrity and voter ID, as those laws started all the way back in 2012, or rather uh, in, in 2003, the advantage was Democrats. The laws actually, as they began to change, was an advantage not to the Republican Party, but to the Democrat Party. But now, rather than shifting to the Republican Party, which is what Democrats would have you think and what the mainstream media would tell you every day, the science, the research shows that instead of favoring Republicans, it now doesn't favor either party. It just simply protects the integrity of the system. Benefit of security in elections benefit both parties and the American people. The new study points to numerous reasons why this is the case. The researchers' conclusions emphatically demonstrate that Republican support for an issue doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for Democrats. In fact, in contrast to the myth of voter suppression, the study found that both parties saw an increase in voter turnout after implementation of voter ID laws. Well, let's stop there for a second. That makes sense, right? I mean, a lot of people have said that their vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter if they go to the polls. They think it's a rigged system. They think it's a, uh, a, a an exercise in futility because their vote is not going to make a difference. If they believe that their vote does make a, get a difference, if they believe that the security of the vote has been so improved that when they go vote it really means something, what do you think is going to happen? more people are going to vote. Are more people going to vote if they have less confidence in the system? Or are more people going to vote the more confidence they have in the system? That's just logic. And it's turning out to be proven true scientifically. This mutual increase in itself is a benefit worth pursuing. Not only is this a re refutation of the left's claims that these common sense reforms amount to Jim Crow 2.0, that's one of the biggest lies to come out of the Biden administration is that election form is Jim Crow 2.0. It's just a slogan. It's something that sounds right. It rolls off the tongue. doesn't have to be true, but it incites people against Republicans. That's why they used it. But the increased voter turnout actually strengthens diverse voter representation in our country by including more citizens in the election process. Voter ID laws have the additional benefit of furthering policies that nearly 8 in 10 Americans support. These laws are so uncontroversial among the public that they scarcely need vindication from a study such as this. What kind of laws are we talking about? Well, the integrity of the elections, the need for children to have a good education and their test scores to reflect that, 
I was listening to a podcast this morning, uh, Morning Wire from the Daily Wire, and they were talking about schools in Baltimore. They're a disaster. In fact, people, parents are filing lawsuits against the school districts in Baltimore for misusing taxpayer money. Baltimore City School, Baltimore schools spend $18,000 per student on education. That's the third highest number in the country. And yet, recent test scores showed that 23 schools in Baltimore, all the students scored zero proficiency in math. So in other words, in 23 schools, not a single student was proficient in math. And it, the numbers are up to 65 75% when you look at all students in all the schools in Baltimore. And, and the, the, the superintendent of education, the person who runs the schools in Baltimore, you know, they're making over $400,000 a year, and they're saying, well, you know, pre-pandemic we were doing better. The pandemic, the pandemic, well, those numbers were not very good before the pandemic. And now they're, they're abysmal. And so, you know, that, that, that's the kind of thing that can change if we don't believe the left's rhetoric, but we actually put safeguards in place to make sure when parents when, of these students in these areas, when people who are concerned about Second Amendment rights, when people who are concerned about transparency and education for their children go to vote, their vote counts— and it makes a difference in the direction of the country, whether it's Democrat or Republican. But it's just that right now, the Democrat Party has chosen to elevate a lot of issues that Americans disagree with them about. So be armed with the facts. Look up this story at Daily Signal. It'll help you. The title of it is Another Study Refutes the Left's False Claims Against Voter ID and secure elections. It's uh, by Hans von Spakovsky and Joseph Sturdy. All right, that's all the time we've got for today, but we would encourage you to tune in tomorrow because we'll have another Christian worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. Have a great day. <laughs>